Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a 40-minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by writer, director, and actor Emerald Vanell, where I ask her, does this episode need its own royal title? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness, and I'm so excited for our guest this week. I'm a massive fan of all of her projects. Without any further ado, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, so I'm gonna I wanna work through the most recent project, which is stunning. And also everyone, you're gonna be like left to wonder, but I just like overshared with Emerald like a major moment and she's having to pivot from this major personal overshare to business. And I just wanna give you validation that Yes, you're amazing. And thank you for working with me on that overshare. So thank you. I love all I ever want is an overshare. My mother's, my mother's trick question, if she's sitting next to someone at dinner who doesn't want to talk or is like not very good at talking or not very forthcoming, her, her opening line is, do you fall in love easily? Jonathan, do you fall in love easily? Ah, that's the best opening line ever. And I could literally, if I wasn't a more trained podcast host, I could have like taken that question and like talked for 40 minutes without interruption. <laughs> um, so that's a really such a good opening. It's such a good icebreaker. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Is your mom from the same town that you're from? Like, are you guys both from the same place? Or like, was she from like a city and then she moved to your home to like, what happened? Sure. Okay, no, so actually we weren't. She grew up in the middle of Wales in Monmouthshire um, in, uh, yeah, on a farm. And she... Uh, she ran away age 16 to go to the King's Road because she'd seen a picture of it in a magazine. She was like, that's where I need to be. I'm oh go- my gosh. Yeah. So, so she-, she has a Welsh baby accent? No, she doesn't actually because her parents are English, but they moved there. Uh-huh. So she kind of, and I think uh, she's of that age where everyone was kind of homeschooled in a sort of slightly, sort of, la- sort of um, ramshackle way. Um, and yeah, so she ran away, she ran away and she worked in a shop. She worked in a, a dress shop, quite a famous dress shop at the time. So growing up, your mom worked in a dress shop and like, she would tell you about cute dresses and stuff? Well, by the time I came on board, she was doing something else. Um, because uh. so, but so sadly not, but she, yeah, she's always been the coolest. She's the coolest. I'm obsessed with the dress shop. Say Yes to the Dress was like my favorite show for much of the early 2000s. Yes. Dude, I, it's, a very, it's, a, it's a major classic. So, but your most recent work, Promising Young Woman, just watched it. It's so good. You like wrote and directed this movie. So where were you? What happened? You were just like walking along one day and you were like, Promising Young Woman. Like, how did it come <laughs> to you? Like, was it a concept that had just like pissed you off for a long time? Like rightfully so that you like wanted to like, or did, like, or did you ever think, is it a serious, like, I'm going to stop answering the question for you now. How did it happen? How did you, how did it happen? I really liked one of your answers. They're more interesting than mine. I think really difficult to say. I'm the worst. What I've realized talking about this film is I basically have, I'm an amnesiac. Like I genuinely <laughs> do not remember even the most like basic facts of my life. So trying to remember exactly how like something like this comes is quite difficult. But I definitely feel like you know, a lot of us are looking back over the, to the very recent past and wondering how certain stuff could have just been so normal. Um, and I guess I'd been thinking a lot, particularly about, um, like the fact that going home with drunk people, girls waking up, uh, in bed with a guy next to them, not knowing who that guy was, and then going on a walk of shame, you know, losing your virginity any way you could. That was all kind of like normal stuff. It was banter. Not only was it banter among like my peers, but it was banter in movies, like really recent romantic comedy movies. There's nothing in my film that has not been, I mean, almost like more explicitly done, but as a comedy elsewhere. I guess I've been thinking a lot about that stuff and, and more particularly like not, not necessarily just the villains of this world, male or female, but like what happens when as a group, we just decide that something really awful is fine, you know? And that 
I guess that was sort of the beginning of it. But really what usually happens to me is it just a scene, it is a little bit like walking down the street and like promising young woman, but, um, but it was a scene and it was the, you know, the, it was the kind of early scene where, um, you know, there's a drunk girl lying on a bed and somebody's undressing her and she's drunkenly saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? And then suddenly she sits up as her knickers are around her ankles and says, what are you doing? And she's sober. And that for me was like, okay, I think I know what this is now. I think I know who this is, this person is, and I want to like see where this goes. I was like, so under your answer, I like didn't want it to be over. And then I like stopped looking at my notes. Um, so, I mean, for me, I feel like in writing my book, I really wanted to talk. I mean, and it really wasn't just in my book. I mean, I've noticed in my whole life, like, really all the trauma that I've gone through, like, I really like to joke about it because if I didn't joke about it, like I would be like, you know, in my mom's basement, like shoving like pop tarts and powdered donuts down my throat, like watching like the 1992, four, eight and 2000 winter games, like on loop, just like watching it like forever. Um, and just really just powdered donuts. And maybe like I would switch to from like the powdered donuts, like the chocolate dipped ones, you know, like where it's like the yellow cake and you dip it in chocolate and it's like that, whatever. So I need to be, do not have those in the UK. I'm just like, my stomach is just actually rumbling. (laughs) There's this like yellow cake donut that we have here. That's like, comes in like the gas station. So there'll be like three powdered minis. Then three, it's like yellow cake and it's dipped in chocolate. So it's got like a hard chocolate shell with like a yellow cake center. And then just to like cleanse your palate. Well, it depends on what side you start eating them from because it's like a tube of um, little mini donuts. Then there's like three just plain, which I always say for the last. I like to just work right through all of it. I don't like to skip around. I can't believe you never had this. You can also get them in big versions. But hang on, that's interesting. So do you save the best for last? Do you like the plain most or do you start with the most delicious and you work your way down? I start with the most delicious, which for me is powdered. Then chocolate in yellow. Like it's, I mean, it's good because like, I'm not a silly, like, of course I'm going (laughs) to eat chocolate and it's like, but like, I do prefer powdered better. And then I just, I feel like the plain cake one just kind of like, it's like at the end of therapy when you do like your safe space meditation so that you're like, I just kind of like, because I feel like if I ended on my favorite, I feel like I would just be like, like yeah, I back back love back. donuts. It eases you back it because I'm. Yes. I would be always. I'm vegetables first. Like, the, like get them out of the way. Get them out of the way so I can like really focus on the delicious stuff, which is bad because if you have a husband like mine or a toddler like mine, it can be swiped off your plate before you've even had time because you've left this delicious part vulnerable. I respect though that you even eat the vegetable though because you know what I started doing I started doing this horrific thing where like I make the vegetables and then I don't eat it or like I'll order a salad and then I just don't and then like this lady nutritionist that I was working with she's really fierce she was like so the thing with eating clean is is that you have to like eat like you have to eat it because (laughs) just ordering it or making it like it doesn't count and I was like oh fuck like but I feel like in my brain, like just being like, well, I made the, I did the Brussels sprouts and the broccoli. Did you not see? But it's like, if it didn't see your innards, honey, it doesn't totally count. So, but whatever. So my question was, I do feel like I, 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 I like to process my trauma through humor. And I think that for some people who, um, I have noticed sometimes when people haven't experienced the same trauma that I have, or they have a different experience of, you know, another version of it. It's like sometimes that humor can be, it can like rub people the wrong way or they're like, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm finally hearing someone talk about it in a way that I thought about it. And I feel like I've really experienced the spectrum of like, I feel like I really saw myself for the first time in reading that or like, no, you know, Me Too really hasn't stopped, which I love that story. Like, let's keep talking about equality in every sense of the word. And let's really come back to having a conversation about what consent means and like making that be the fierce, gorgeous thing, which I think is so important. What has been your spectrum of experience after releasing this project about such a, you know, intense topic? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's sort of everything that you have described really. It's so difficult when you talk about anything like this, you know, you have to be so 
so careful. Um, but I think the only way you can do it, for me anyway, and, and, and obviously for you, for your book, is you have to express your, you know, you firstly have to sort of be honest, I suppose, even if it's hard, even if it's not, you know, empowering and cathartic. These are the things I think that are often expected of us if we talk about things that are difficult. So so much of stuff that's difficult isn't empowering and it isn't, it is messy and it is difficult. And, and, and so, um, there's that. And, and then I, I, like you, I find it incredibly difficult to talk about anything serious unless it's with humour. I've just, it's certainly the way that I communicate. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm quite sort of, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I'm bad at expressing myself in a very kind of straightforward, earnest way. And I, I know it always have been. So therefore it made sense that this film you know, in spite of it being dark, it is a dark comedy. But I also think that we have this funny idea that comedy or being funny or using humour somehow is designed to make something more palatable or it's sort of, it's light. I don't think comedy is any of those things. I think that often the things that hit me the hardest are funny and they're horribly funny and they're funny because they they hit me in such a kind of profoundly true way. And so it's really difficult if you're, if you're talking about anything like this, you have to kind of completely respect and understand everyone's experience is different. And so that for lots of people, they would, you know, want to watch this movie and I completely respect that, or they might watch it and they might not like the way it's done. And I, and I can understand that too. But for me, it was trying to talk about something that I find really difficult. I don't have any answers. I made a film, I'm not an expert. I made a film about how I feel about all the stuff, which is that, you know, it's horrendous and unrelenting and frustrating and scary and uh, yeah. And all of the things that it is, but yeah, it's so, it's so difficult you know, it, it, there's this, there's a lot of pressure, I think, on anyone now to be right, you know, to be good versus bad. You know, this is right, <sighs> this is wrong, this is good, this is bad. But the thing is, is that those things aren't that useful when you're talking about people expressing themselves in any way. You can say, I didn't like it. You can say, I found this difficult. I thought it was badly shot. I didn't like the acting. I didn't like, you know, with your book, I didn't like, you know, this bit, this thing. But it's very difficult when you say, that's wrong, that's bad, this is bad. Because, you know, it means actually that that, that is very, that means that other people who want to talk about a similar thing in a different way are vulnerable as well. So it's, I don't know, it's such a complicated thing. And I, I again, if you make anything about anything complicated or difficult that you have sort of you know, personal investment in as I, I'm sure everyone you know has up to a point yeah it's oh it's there's a lot of pressure to serve everyone and it's impossible yeah. to do it's impossible to do so you just have to do the thing that you feel is right and you know cop it if people don't love it and that's and and kind of respect that it's hard my god it's so hard to to sort of be like okay you know you hated it but fine that's okay that's okay people should fast forward through this question if they haven't seen it yet but i have a question i noticed the different colors that she uses to mark in her journal after she's had a date Mm -hmm. in the beginning did she use the black one because she kills him the thing about the marks in her journal is I think quite early on, I just decided that it's best for people to use their imagination on that. But sometimes she uses black and sometimes blue and sometimes red, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in my imagination, I want her to have murdered the first guy because he pissed me off. Well, they all pissed me off, but especially I just thought that would be so fun if she just, like if there was like, you know, like keys in her knuckles and she just was like, you know, just like, I thought I mean, I that could think, be interesting. 
it's a really difficult one. It's so difficult with a movie like this because it's sort of not really, I kind of realized early on that it was going to be so tempting for me to explain every single, do you know what I mean? Like, particularly when you love something so much, you've thought about it so deeply and you really want to, you know, if people fit, you know, if people respond to it in a way that maybe you weren't expecting, what I realized is it really wasn't for me to kind of like muscle in and be like, no, no, it's about, because your relationship with a film is so personal, you know, and the way that you feel about it, the way that you interpret it is personal. So in terms of like plottier things like that, I've sort of like stepped back because otherwise I would just literally be on Twitter all day, like micromanaging everybody's like feelings about the film or like turning up at the houses being like, no, I'm so sorry. You missed you misinterpreted <laughs> I need to explain. So yeah. So that's the kind of long winded answer. That was such a good answer. And I love that. I love using my imagination. So wait, I have a like filmmaker question. So when you use the term, like, you know, plottier things, um, what does that mean again? So I guess, I guess what I mean by that is that, when it comes to characters and relationships and things in a movie, I think they're so open to interpretation that how anyone interprets them is, is great. But when it, you know, if you're writing a, yeah, if you're writing a movie that is necessarily ambiguous when it comes to certain like plot details, um, then I think it's important to let, to actively let people interpret those those beats, those story beats, how they would like to, you know, so much of this film, we do give the audience, you know, a very, I think a very clear idea of what has happened and what is about to happen and all that. But, you know, but part of it is that, you know, if you're in, if you're talking about something like, you know, we are with this movie and it always makes the movie sound incredibly dour and serious, which, you know, the subject matter is, but I hope the movie isn't. But, you know, I think you just... Yeah, you just kind of have to, uh, you want to engage with the audience. And so you want to kind of say, I I think we all know what happens. I think we all know what this scene is. I think we all know what happened then. I think we all know what is happening now. And and that I think is an important thing, not to be didactic or preachy, but to be like, this is something that we all fundamentally in our kind of souls understand, I guess, which makes it sound very pretentious, but. No, I feel like that. I feel like I, I think I very much understand what you're stepping in, but let me just ask this really quick before I ask what I was going to ask. Was I the only person that had that question? Do you want to be the only person that had that question? No, I mean, I just like, I'm wondering like, is there something the matter with me that like I watched the whole movie and that was like one of my, it should just kind of stick with me that I was like, oh, I hope she murdered that one guy when she used the black marker. What does that say about me? I think that's exactly what, you know, that is exactly what the film is about. It's about what we want to see from movies like this. It's what we want to see in real life versus what re- the reality is, you know? So it's, it's important that, you know, something might be blood, it might be ketchup. Because, you know, because it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's also kind of a conversation about how we process stuff and how we want, yeah, what we want. We're all baying for blood, right? And so it's like, how do we deliver that? And what does it really look like when it comes and all of that sort of that sort of stuff? But no, honestly, that has been a very common question. So don't worry, you are not the only you are not the only murderous. Basic dum dum. <laughs> okay, but wait. I'm obsessed with your approach on oftentimes I feel like and this even happens in like I mean, I'm not creating like gorgeous scripted masterpieces, but I but when I think about certain ways of just like depicting things on like social or like whatever project I'm working on, I feel like the longer that I'm in entertainment, the longer that I'm creatively involved in everything that I'm getting to be creatively involved with, I find myself wanting to hold the viewer's hand less and like trust that people can sit with that discomfort and can sit with whatever I'm trying to, whether it was in my book or whether it was like, there's a lot of times I feel like we're, editors and other people will say like, well, gee, like it. And, but sometimes it's like, no, like I, they, I have an intuition here. It's like meant for them to talk about, like, I'm not meant to be hitting everyone over the head with necessarily every aspect. So I respect that creatively. And I think that's really cool. And I really enjoyed the movie from beginning to end, really on the edge of my seat. Love. So that's amazing. So did you, okay. So 
I like, I meant to talk like more about other things that I'm like really obsessed with the movie. So I want to ask a few more questions. You might have to skip forward through this because you haven't seen it yet. So we just need to mark this because I'm going to do a couple little baby plot spoilers. So, cause like I love what she did, like her like little kill billness when she like gets that, like when she gets, um, when she takes the friend to lunch and then she like sets up that little thing. Cause I loved that the character did like went there, like got kind of fucked up and got kind of dark. I especially loved it at the end of the one part, which was like, you think I really do that? Like I didn't really kidnap her, honey. She's like at this diner, like get out of here. That I loved so much. Cause I felt like I was the whole, that whole scene. I was like, Oh God, is she really like, how deep did she go? Like how bad did she do? And then she kind of like, it wasn't as dark as what you kind of thought it was going to be, which I kind of loved. And I thought that her response was so funny. So like, did you feel like, as a director and as a writer, like, are you able to, like, disassociate, like, okay, this character isn't, like, a real, like, she is real in the movie, but, like, like, did you feel protective of her or, like, of, like, the character herself? Or did, like, what was that like? That's so interesting. I don't, oh, do I feel protective? I, I mean, definitely, I think she, you know, she's definitely a person who doesn't need protecting. I definitely like to be protected by her. I think, I mean, obviously, she's sort of, I mean, I'm not very nice. I don't know anyone who's very nice, honestly. You know, when it comes down to it, when it comes down to this kind of stuff, when it comes down to, you know, the sorts of things that Cassie was dealing with. She has PTSD. She's in, like, terrible grief. She's in a kind of self-harming cycle. You know, those things make you often very difficult to love you know she's made herself deliberately difficult to love so people don't come near her and that's part of this whole thing and and so uh I think yeah I think actually it's sort of quite freeing to think okay and for me with this movie it was like okay if I wanted to do something like this if I wanted to like wreak revenge on people who had wronged somebody I loved in the past what could I do I couldn't get a gun. I wouldn't know how to get a gun. I wouldn't know how to shoot it. I know that if I was in a room with a man with a gun, he would always certainly get it off me and shoot me instead. And then he'd be fine. He'd get off, (sighs) you know, easily. You know, so it's kind of like, it's like, okay, but what could I do? I could turn up at people's houses and I could fuck with them and I could frighten them and I could make them think things, I could make them see things. And and when you have someone like Carrie Mulligan, who is just so like supernaturally gifted and brilliant, you know, it does, she is, you know, she is all the things that she is in this movie. She's lovable and she's funny and we're on her side, but she's also terrifying. And I think it's because because she doesn't ever do what we're all told to do. And this applies to everyone in, in, in all sorts of scenarios. She doesn't let it go. She doesn't say, she doesn't do it. Everyone's saying, it was years ago, get over it. You're ruining your life. She is, we can see what she's doing. We as an audience want her to choose the path of like candy and love and normality and all that stuff. But but she's the person saying that it wasn't right and I won't let it go. And that gives her so much power and it makes her so frightening. And And I think it's, yeah, it's sort of one of those things that I do think like, I do believe wholeheartedly in forgiveness. I think everyone should be forgiven. But that forgiveness is entirely dependent on an admission of guilt and remorse. Mm. And it's something that we've been talking about so much politically now with what's been happening in America, you know, with this new sort of, this new conflict between people saying, hey, just move on. And the other people saying, well, yeah, of course we'd all love to just start afresh, but that's not how it works. That's not how any of it works. So you know, it's all a very, like, <laughs> very highfalutin answer, very complicated answer to, I was protective of her, but that never meant that I was keen to make her more likable. Or all the things I think that people maybe would expect from a movie like this, more, like, badass and, like, whip-smart. And I love movies like that. I love characters like that. But, like, I also don't really know anyone like that. I feel like she was pretty whip-smart, though, honey. I mean... I wouldn't know how to, like, find someone's fucking kid. And, like, I don't know. I mean, I was really, like... I mean, the makeup artist thing, I was, like, uh, uh, I, I was, like, on the edge of my seat. Like, I just, like... I, I just, like, edge of my seat. I, I think that I have, like, a... There's a few things that you said that I think are just so interesting in terms of just 
everything, but really trauma and like life, you know, and you, you know, Buddha says, or someone from Buddhism said like, you know, to live is to suffer. And I think that really like context is, um, you know, so important. And so when you say like, is it good? Is it bad? Well, sometimes it's both. Like sometimes like both things can be true, not of a project, like not the movie, but just like a thing, like there can, you can live through trauma. And there were aspects of it that were, that when I think about trauma that I lived through, it's like, there were times that were, I could go so far as to say fun and like, could like, you know, weren't as damaging, but then there was other stuff that like was in the depths of my soul and like, was like the worst, most horrific shit that I've ever been through. And sometimes those happen like not that far away from each other. So I think it's really interesting to think about context and a yes and. And I also kind of felt like that's where her character ends up because she, that was another part of the movie I just was really kind of inspired by is that like, even after all that, she kind of still wanted to choose love, which I think is so human and like sweet. And that is so relatable. I just loved it so much. I was really on the edge of my seat. I mean, yeah, I I feel like talking to you about it now, what I'm seeing is, is that like, I think maybe... Um, who's that, like, man, and he made Kill Bill, and I saw it in eighth grade. Quentin Tarantino? Yes, I think he made me think in movies that everyone is going to come, like, rip somebody in half with, like, a rattlesnake and, like, a brass knuckle, like, up their butthole. So every time I see, like, like it's like, what's the most horrific way you could murder someone? It's like, you bury a snake and like, the, like, so I think that's why in that first scene I was like, does the black thing, does the black mark mean that she like disemboweled him? And then like the red marks mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? I think he just like traumatized me. And also like, the, we're so familiar. That's what's so fun about making film like this too. You know, for all that it is very serious, I hope that it's also a movie that like everyone would want to watch because, you know, it is also funny and also gripping and, you know, these sorts of things. But what's so interesting about this stuff and so fun, like just from a sort of like nerdy structural point of view is that, I'm with you completely. I was brought up in all those movies on these kinds of like revenge movies, which were like, you know, they had a sort of a similar structure. Like they, if somebody goes on a vengeance journey, they visit people along the way and each person they visit is sort of like, you know, more horrific and they die in a more horrific way. And like, we love it. It's like my favorite thing in the world. And so, you know, so much of making this film was like, okay, well, how do we like work with those expectations and how do we deliver a similar kind of pleasure but in a completely different way that feels like more grounded because yeah it is like I love all that stuff so much but I also think you know it's it's really fun and interesting to look at um what would what would happen if a real person was put in that world and needed and was doing that stuff I also think that just gives you like much um this film was so smart. Like my husband and I have talked about it every day since we watched it. Cause it is a, it is a story that sticks with you and you do talk about it and, it, and you end up talking about the systems that helped to, to create the, the systems that helped to create like this sort of thing to happen. Like that we talk about in this movie. So I loved it so much. I do want to progress to the crown because Thigh chills, tricep chills. Oh my God. So everyone, I don't know if you like know this, but I'll just like tell you now, if you haven't seen The Crown, Emerald literally plays fucking Camilla Parker Bowles. Like I'm not kidding. So can we talk? I know you that you said that you had amnesia earlier. I, well, amnesia or, you know, amnesia tendencies. But like, where were you when you found that out? Because obviously this this TV series was like a really major deal. I'm guessing that it was already really popular when you got the role because you make your debut in season three. Thank you. I finished binging four like a minute ago. So I was like, you know, and I'm never, I'm kind of like, ew. I hate that now when I think Harry Potter, I just get like a bad taste in my mouth, which is just so devastating. But I never had a copy of Harry Potter last more than like 48 hours. And I like that with the crown, like, cause I read it so fast. Like I have to see it. I can't. Ah, so, so like, was your agent or your team? Like, so like, what about what happened? Well, so I like, yeah, I like you. I absolutely love the show. It's, and also it's just like in England, I think 
I think really we do make just some of the most incredible stuff in the world, but it's very rare to have the kind of budget that like, you know, HBO recently and like Netflix have brought over to us, you know, because usually we, you know, we, we don't have this kind of budget. And so just from a purely like, um, just like a nerd point of view, I just wanted to see what something like that was like. Like I've never seen anything like that before. So, but but really I first, I auditioned early on, I think for the first series before it ever came out for some, I can't even remember what the part was, just like a little part in it. Didn't get it, obviously. Thank God. (laughs) But I said to my amazing, wonderful agent, Lindy, I just said, you know, at some point they're going to want young Camilla Parker Bowles if, if this carries on. And if I do, will you just please, please ask them to call me because I really want to audition for it. And Nina Golden, Robert Stern, who are the amazing casting directors who've just basically cast me in everything. I, I oh, like, they, they're just the best ever. And so, yeah, they let me come in. And, but it was, it was right. I think I auditioned just as we were wrapping Killing Eve or, you know, near the end of that. And so I was like insane you know, I was just a completely insane person. Um, and I came in and auditioned and it was just like, I was just, yeah, it was a mad, I, mad, I, I did a mad performance, I think. And they just called me back and were like, look, go to sleep, <laughs> come back and audition when you're not like, you know, just working 48 hours a day or whatever it was. Um, so I came back and I auditioned with Josh and with Emma, who ended up being... Diana and who is just amazing and yeah and so and I got it but it's just it's such an interesting thing because you know she's always struck me as a really interesting person somebody who's just been kind of yeah who kind of got sucked into a really unbelievably weird situation so I was always kind of thrilled about her and and so yeah so it was amazing so like when you play such an iconic person and you're like in the clothes, you're in the like, you're in the scenes. Like, so here's the other thing. I'm like fully Midwestern, fully American, like in Midwestern people, honey, like, I don't even know what's like wrong with us. Like there's a lot going on. But so my mom like felt a very kindred connection to Diana, honey, because they got married the same year. They had their first kid the same year. They had their second kid the same year. Then obviously Diana didn't have a third kid. I'm my mom's third child. So that didn't happen, but then they got divorced in the same year. So that made my mom, I don't know if you know this, but my mom and Diana were like literally, you know, obviously best friends in my mom's imagination. And so that made her like my auntie, Princess Diana, even though I never met her, but like, you know, we were very much like this, you know, like I was really into Diana. And, and then obviously being a mid- basic Midwestern person, there was some time in there where we were a little bit, you know, not understanding, you know, not understanding. Camilla was like, not, I didn't want to have Auntie Camilla when I was nine and eight and seven and six, you know, it wasn't, you know, tabloids were a different world then. So like, I guess there's like 18,000 questions in one, but it's like from growing up in England and knowing who Camilla literally was your whole life. And then when you're on set, and then, like, in the clothes. Did you, like, did you feel for Camilla? Did you feel for Diana? Did you, like, were you, like, oh, my gosh, I can't, like, what did you feel? Like, what do I, like, what do I need to tell my childhood self? But actually, can I just say, your performance as Camilla made me like her so much more anyway, just because I feel like there's so much more, like, uh, uh, and actually really wasn't her fault, like, that it's, like, such a big deal. But, like, I just couldn't help it, Diana, honey, the clothes. I was, like, young and gay, and I still am, and I just... Wow. And also like, well, this is the other thing, you know, you can love Diane. I mean, I love Diane. I love... I, we can love both. She's... And um, they're both extraordinary women in completely unbelievable, extraordinary circumstances. That's the thing about the royal family. And that's the thing that's so fascinating about the crown. I mean, look, the crown is completely fictionalised. So when it came to it, for me, the only way I could do it was say, okay, this is just Camilla, the character. So I, I'm just going to play this person that we are, you know, we're making. You can't, otherwise, you just feel it's too... I'm also too lazy an actress to do any research, <laughs> in spite of all of the amazing research that the Crown do for you. So it's just, they were only ever going to get, like, you know, my, my sort of... That's probably healthier of you, though, too, like, mentally. It's probably, like, to detach it like that, well, like, better to approach. I think maybe, but also just, like, it. you know, it's, it's important to... Rem- I can't pretend to know nobody knows anything about Camilla really she's actually very private we know what the papers have told us for years and but but really you know when you talk to anyone who knew her then 
and anyone who knows her now, everyone says the same thing, which is that she's an incredibly nice person, incredibly kind person and very funny and fun. Mm. So, and so it was really interesting for me kind of going back and saying, okay, well, let's just put everything. I don't know anything about this. There's no hindsight. There's no nothing. I'm just going to be this person at this time, falling in love with a completely impossible person. Well, look at, you know, look at the situation now. It's so anyone, you know, in that position, it's just like unimaginable. It's unimaginable. And so that's the kind of thing you just have to play that. Like, what if I fell in love with someone, but everything that they represented and what they would do to my life is... It would be like me wanting to marry, like, I'm trying to think of the most famous person in the world. Who is the most famous person in the world? Who is the most famous person in the world? But who's, do you know what it would be like? It's like, I, I'm trying to think. I mean, we can't even put our finger on it because it's I, so, it was, especially then. Because that was it. They were just such a huge thing. And so like, and, and there's something so awful and like, um, kind of touching about that scene in series four when Camilla says to him, like, please don't pitch me. You know, she loves him. It was very, everyone was having an effect. This is the other thing. Everyone in those days, not just the royal, royal family, but like everyone in that kind of strata of society were kind of, they were all partying, kind of sleeping with it. It was, you know, it was just a different thing then. I think we're all much more, um, monogamous now and much more sort of yeah I, I don't know anyway you know what I think it is I don't think we're much more monogamous now I think what it is now is that we're hopefully more transparent it's like the folks who are in open marriages it's like you know they're in an open marriage the people who are like uh, don't like you know we only play together it's like at least in the LGBTQ world I feel like it's at least I think it's more about having like boundaries and knowing what your boundaries are because I mean I still feel like, especially in rural places, actually, no, that's not even fair to say. People still cheat like a motherfucker and people still like, like, you know, want to be like, oh, no, we're monogamous. Liar. Um, I think, you know, there's some people that are just, it's probably one of those context things. You know, we were saying, like, is it good? Is it bad? It's probably like hasn't changed. I'm usually disappointed when I try to think that things have changed, but then they're like, it's like, no, it's kind of still really. Do you know what? You're completely right that you're completely right. I think what it was is that it was quite open or, or it was tacitly understood, let's say. Mm. Understood that, that these, that uh, people of that kind of society at that time were, were kind of sleeping with people, you know, discreetly. Particularly, I love, and some of the women. <laughs> yeah, I, the way that they talk. I mean, it's just so especially like, like all of um, uh, Princess Margaret's like little like oh, she's dabblings oh, obsessed. She's so brilliant, but but also, but I think that's the thing that's so awful. That is the thing that what's so brilliant about this series is that that it, according you know in this series, and I'm like very careful, particularly because of all the sort of stuff that went on when it came out. But like. You know, it's very much a fiction. Fiction, right? But in you know, but in this series, it is it is simply that nobody told Diana. She didn't know what she was marrying into. Everyone else had this tacit understanding. They kind of knew what the rules were, and the rules were: we do this stuff in public, and we do this stuff in private, and that's kind of the way it goes. Um, and, she, and it seems like she really wanted to love him and be. Yeah. And she, yeah. you know, and she was very, very young and all of those things. And, and I think, I do believe certainly in this series that nobody, you know, nobody ever, nobody ever starts out wanting to hurt people or wanting to be kind of cruel or any of those things. But, but it was such an extraordinary circumstance. You know, so strange. And I think so much for me for that dinner with, you know, the lunch scene with Diana, for me, mm. I was thinking, you know, Part of it is she genuinely does want to help her or she thinks she does. And then she sees her and she's so young and beautiful. She sort of can't help but be sort of jealous and competitive. You know, who among us is not guilty of that? But also it's kind of that thing of she suddenly realises how little Diana knows about him, how, how completely mad this whole thing is actually. You know, that I think that, that's the thing that I'm so interested in about this kind of version of Camilla is that she's, 
you know, she is sympathetic. She is quite canny and savvy. She knows what's going on. And, and I think she's quite shocked probably as that dinner goes on by what's kind of happening. She's like, this is going to be a wreck and I can't even say anything. Yeah, I think probably. Um, but, you know, but who's to say if that's, I mean, God knows, that was just our version of it. So, okay, wait, one other, this is like trivial and I can't help it, I'm a hairdresser. Like, once a hairdresser, always a hairdresser. So, obviously, you've got this stunning bright blonde hair and that you are... It's very much a gorgeous wig in the series. Or did you just go lighter recently? What happened? No, no, it's a wig. Or do they just... It's all, it is, fully, yeah. The thing is about Camilla's hair, she's got a lot... I've got quite flimsy, sort of sad... She's not flimsy or sad. She's bright, she's bold, she's gorgeous. Don't talk about your hair like that. Yeah. yeah. But Camilla, honey, she's been rocking... You can tell she's got like a billion hairs per square inch. Exactly. Like, so I had... So they had the amazing wig. We also had teeth, because our teeth are slightly different. And actually so much of your smile and the way you interact with people, whether you're, you know, it's just a different thing and it changes the voice and stuff. So we had all that. And yeah. Once I had the wig on and the teeth in and the Macintosh and sensible skirt on, that was it. I kind of, you know, I knew, <laughs> I like, I know women like that too. You know, I think people who are straightforward who try and stay, you know, play with a straight bat and all those sorts of things. But of course they're not immune to things going wrong either, you know, and it's sort of almost more devastating when they do because nobody, you know, I'm sure she wasn't expecting any of the things that happened to happen. So, yeah, I mean, I loved it. And I love working with Josh O'Connor. I mean, Josh O'Connor and Emma Corrin, I mean, they're just the two of the best actors in the world. I mean, partly I was so obsessed, not only with The Crown, but like I'd seen God's Own Country with Josh in it. Did you see that movie? Oh my God. It's like the most romantic. It's about, it's, it's a love story between a farmer and his like in the middle of nowhere and and the guy that comes and helps like lamb the sheep and it's basically it's a gay story it's like the most romantic gay story of all time it's beautiful oh my god you can okay when you first started saying farmer i was like are you about to fall asleep but then when you said gay story i'm like (laughs) oh honey i'm say out of respect for josh i didn't say an enormous amount of very sexy sex and lambs and adorable lambs and like lambs and gay sex i'm there yesterday (laughs) But it's amazing, and he's amazing, and, and you would you wouldn't even recognize him, you know. So yeah, it's the best. I just you know I can't believe I can't believe I've even got a job doing anything. Very what delightful. you are incredible in it, and I just you're incredible in it, and I love that you just shared all that with us. Now here's the other thing that we're transitioning to part three, and then is there a, so. But then here's the other thing I don't know if everyone knows because you're such a multi-hyphenate. Like, it's not your fault that you're like multi-hyphenate in caps lock because you had mentioned earlier that you had just got done shooting Killing Eve, which you were the showrunner for season two, right? So, yeah, well, so sort of. I mean, we don't really have showrunners in England. So I was the head writer and exec producer, which I kind of always ah. say because I don't want to give myself a title that I technically didn't have, but... But yeah, so I wrote, yeah, so so I wrote uh, with lots of other great people, series two of Killing Eve. Obsessed. And so obsessed. So that show is so fucking good. Everything you do is amazing. Your team needs a gorgeous medal if they don't already have one. Oh, thank you. So, but I mean, I think one thing that's always kind of like, how do I say it? One thing that's always kind of broken my heart, but I also think is really cute is like my mom, anytime I've ever brought her on set, she always will talk to other women and be like, how did you do this? Like, how did you get here? And like, and I just look at her and I'm like, mom, you're so smart and capable. And she's, you know, brilliant at everything she's ever done in her career, but she worked in my family's business. And I think, I think that there's probably very much a part of her that would have like, loved to have gone and been a producer and a writer and just didn't think that it was necessarily like for her. And I just also, it's like anyone, and I think this is something that I think about a lot and getting curious, like whether I'm interviewing like an, you know, an, uh, an etymologist or a historian or whatever expert I'm interviewing. It's like, well, how can other people do what you've done? If they're interested in this, if they want to get into this. And I think for you in terms of entertainment, it's like, you write, 
you act, you produce. I mean, you create movies. I mean, you really are a quadruple threat because you're navigating this industry in such an amazing way. And so for women listening, for women plus people listening, for which is, you know, not binary for anyone else listening, how how would you say, okay, well, if you're into this into this career, if you're into these projects I've done and you want to like fancy yourself there someday, this is like, you need these resources the most queen. Like, what would you say are the three things that people need to be able to make it? I mean, God, it's so difficult. I mean, the first thing is whenever I get asked this, I just have, I feel really response. I, I have a responsibility to like caveat it with the fact that, you know, I was incredibly lucky. I had parents who lived in London who could support me for the couple of years where there was like, you know, no work. That stuff is so, it's still regrettably so unfair. You know, things are so unfairly skewed because any job in the arts is, you know, it pays nothing for years. And that, that I think, like, just as a sort of sidebar is something that has to change so fast. But, but so I feel like, I don't know, I feel disingenuous if I don't mention that because I'm aware that I'm, I started, you know, I, I had a real leg up when I started, which is, you know, which I should say, but, but in terms of kind of what, what I did was I just, I guess I did everything I could try my hand at. So I, I wrote books for, you know, so I was acting the little bits that I got, the little small parts and things. But then I also, you know, I wrote a book that was a hundred thousand pages long. that was terrible garbage that was turned down by everyone. Um, lots of scripts that were terrible garbage that were turned down by anyone. But then, you know, but then I wrote another book, you know, one of the, one of the, uh, publishing houses said, well, we think this book is garbage, but we sort of like something. Do you have anything else that you might be doing? And so then I went away and wrote something else. And then, you know, we ended up, that ended up being my first book that came out. And so, you know, and then while I was acting, I would be writing books on the side. And it was just, it was just, you know, uh, anything, any way that I could kind of get myself in, um, any way that I could sort of prove that I could do something. And then my third book that came out, Monsters, that was the thing that an amazing woman called Jessica Nappett, who has this incredible show, um, she read it and she said, would you come and write, you know, maybe write an episode of this show with me? So it was just like, I, I think I'm just rambling, but it's to say that I think, you know, for me, it was writing because I can, do, you can do it anywhere. You can do it on your phone. You can do it and, and you, it doesn't have to be good. I think so many, so many women in particular, and as you say, kind of so many people that like don't fit in any kind of like very specific regimented like box, you know, we lack confidence and we're worried that what we have to say isn't interesting or people won't listen to it or, you know, we have confidence issues, I guess. And so it's just like, give yourself permission to be really bad at the beginning like terrible, like everything, the first like billion words that you write, just write them off, just say like, I'm just doing this. And like, I don't have to be like Shakespeare. And I think that it's just like giving yourself, take like giving, um, taking the pressure off a bit. Like don't take the pressure off in terms of volume, like, like make yourself get those words down, but do take the pressure off it being perfect because that's the thing that crushes us all really is when I have to be better than everyone else immediately but none of us can be i guess obsessed and i'm pretty sure wait but so would you say then that writing was your first passion like before acting i i think that i um i'm more confident as a writer also you know you can do again it's that thing is i think particularly if you're doing other stuff or if you're a mother all the things that you know all of our lives are busy but so if there's something that you can do yourself, acting you can't really do by yourself, really. Directing, I mean, you can't do by yourself. Producing, all these things. But if but you can, you know, you can, you've got this. Like you've got a pen and paper. So that's the thing I feel like I've always got it. If everything else goes wrong or if like this year we're stuck inside for a year, at least I can do that. So that I feel, I feel very um, relieved that I can do that. I'm very grateful. Okay, I'm obsessed with that. So really, it's this is what I wrote down. The first, so obviously you did your caveat about like, you know, where you come from in your family and privilege, and that's really important to caveat, and I love that. 
1A, 1B, C, and D, though, is shame resilience. I wrote down shame resilience because that's one thing I feel like I've experienced a lot is like having so many people be like, no, 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 I don't like it. I don't get it. Like, but you have to be able to like, so many people like pack up the tent and like, I, I can't bear being like putting my heart into this again and then being told no, like yet again, because that sense of rejection is just like, it just doesn't feel good sometimes. But I think I've also learned that like, it's actually not as bad, like that feeling of rejection. It's more of like what I've thought, like, it's like, it's like something I thought was going to be really bad, but really it's like, isn't it more of the fear that like other people think I got turned down that's worse than like, I can live through this. It's fine. Then the other thing is that I wrote down is you got to be willing to try things like being willing to try new things and then being willing to like suffer rejection if you do try them. So those kind of go together. And then the, the permission to not, well, don't be a perfectionist. Like don't be a perfectionist and it's easier said than done, but it's like one thing that you can get around that is just like doing it. And that's what you said, like put a foot in front of the other. Then you know, the other thing you said is I think it's really interesting. And I think it's kind of how I was able to break, break into this as well as like I had hair and like I could do hair in the salon, like whether or not anyone who was ever going to, you know, be into my podcast or buy my book or want me to do a series, whatever. I always loved doing hair. I still love doing hair. And that by itself was enough to sustain me like mentally, emotionally, financially. And so it's like, I do think it's so important for you to have like at least one part of your job that even if you're not doing a hundred percent of what you want to be doing now, so you got to have like one thing that you're excited to go work on. So whether it's excited to go do some hair or excited to go write something, it's like, I think that really helps get you right. Yeah. That you're so right. That's exactly it. much more succinct than I could ever have said it. <laughs> no, no. I mean, Emerald, I'm just so grateful for your time and so grateful that you're here. And you're like, just amazing. I'm so glad, excited that I got to interview you and talk to you. And I hope I can meet you in real life someday. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was writer, director, and actor, Emerald Vanell. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJVN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. Our editor is Andrew Carson, and our transcriptionist is Alita Vunsha. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, Emily Bosick, Chelsea Jacobson, and Colin Anderson. 